Good morning, everyone. Just wanted to uh, begin by, I think I've done this in times past, but um, if you're tired of the snow, uh, just remember this verse from uh, Genesis 8, when God is making his covenant with Noah. He said this, while the earth remains, is the earth remaining? Yes. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So next time you have a shovel and you're shoveling, remember the faithfulness of God in providing that snow. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have already been moved and blessed by the presence of your spirit with us this morning. And we pray now, Lord, as we open your word as your family, as your adopted sons and daughters, that spirit, you would come with the word that you have inspired and breathed out. And Lord, grant us blessing, grant us help, grant us encouragement, uh, grant us, Lord, surprise, if that's what your pleasure is to do this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would be Lord over this time of preaching and that we would leave here amazed all over again at your greatness and your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I grew up in northern Alberta, in the city of Edmonton, as many of you know. And growing up in northern Alberta, I spent many happy hours on a variety of lakes in that part of the province fishing for northern pike. There's a picture of a northern pike. And the first time I caught one of these fish, I was rather naive and I reached into its mouth to take the hook out and uh, then release the fish back into the water hopefully. But the thing about northern pike, if you've ever fished for them, is that you'll know there's a great, you'll never know what you're gonna get on Sunday, right? <laughs> they have an abundance of razor sharp teeth. In fact, they have rows of teeth. And as I reached into the mouth of the fish to take, hopefully take that hook out, it chomped down on my hand and I ended up with a very bloodied uh, hand and some significant pain. It didn't com compute, for some reason, it didn't compute with me that I was dealing with, at that moment, a wild animal. And that probably this animal was not going to act in any sort of tame fashion. So I learned the hard way that day that I needed to have a pair of protective gloves and a set of pliers <laughs> going forward whenever I caught one of these fish to, to remove the hook. A wild animal is going to act wild, yes? Uh, just like they should. Well, this morning our preaching text is one that teaches us, friends, that our God is not tameable that he will not be domesticated, <clears throat> that he will not be manipulated or brought under any sort of human control. And that efforts to do so may end up going very badly for us. And so here's the setup to our text. The priest Eli was active in Israel with his two, uh, we could call them notorious sons, Hophni, and Phineas, 
the Lord had voiced his rejection of the house of Eli because of their obvious wickedness. One day Israel went out to battle versus the Philistines. They lost. 4,000 Israelite men perished that day. Due to the ongoing wickedness of the priest Eli and his sons in Israel, God was not fighting for his people. But the Israelites didn't get that. They didn't understand that. After they lost that battle, they had a meeting and they expressed their wonderment at the fact that they'd lost this battle. And they came up with a plan. And the plan was simple. They said in 1 Samuel 4, 3, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. That's, the, that's a good idea. Let's bring it here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. To put it rather plainly, Israel decided here that the Ark of the Covenant would serve as a sort of rabbit's foot. A good luck charm that if they would just simply bring this ark into the mix, it would give them success in battle. They determined that the ark of the covenant where Yahweh dwelt would be employed as a sort of prop to their war effort. Christopher Wright, I think, explains this rather nicely. He says this, quote, the Israelites imagined that by taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle, they could compel the presence and support of Yahweh. Well, as we indicated already, our God refuses to be used as a prop in our plans. He will not be manipulated. He will not be trivialized in the way that Israel intended here. And to make matters worse, 1 Samuel 4.4 tells us that those wicked sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the ark as it went out (laughs) into battle, onto the battlefield. Well, what was the result? The result of that second battle in 1 Samuel 4 against the Philistines was an even more severe and devastating defeat than the earlier battle. This time, instead of 4,000 men, Israel lost 30,000 men. And Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, also died on the battlefield. And horror of horrors for Israel, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and it was taken away to Philistia. And when Eli the priest caught wind of all this, when he heard of the death of his two sons and how the Philistines had now captured the ark, he fell backwards off his chair and he broke his neck and he died. So at this point in the story, the house of Eli has been wiped out. The precious ark of the covenant is in Philistine hands. And hopefully, hopefully, Israel has learned the hard way that God will not be trifled with. God will not be manipulated. He will not be treated in a cavalier fashion. 
in order to suit the whims of human beings. Well, friends, our preaching text this morning is 1 Samuel 5. If you have a Bible, we invite you to turn there. We always have the, the, the verses on screen as well. 1 Samuel 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And now this travel route here, Ebenezer to Ashdod, this is a distance of approximately 50 kilometers for us Canadians. And so the ark of God travels 50 kilometers with the Philistines in a southwesterly direction from Ebenezer in the north, now down to the Philistine city of Ashdod. And Ashdod is about four kilometers inland from the Mediterranean Sea. The ark of God, we need to understand, is now exiled. We might put it that way. It's now exiled from the ter territory of Israel into the territory of Philistia. God's presence with the ark travels away from his people into this foreign territory. Verse two, when the Philistines took the ark of God, or sorry, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now this Dagon, who is this? Well, he is the national god of the Philistines. We think, we think Dagon was a god of grain or a god of vegetation. There was an older view that had him a god of the sea or of fish. Uh, but now we think, most scholars think he was a god of grain or vegetation. When the Philistines had come into Canaanite territory, Dagon was already being worshipped there in Canaanite territory. And so the Philistines simply, as good ancient Near Easterners, they simply assimilated Dagon into their own religious beliefs. And there in, in their very city of Ashdod, they've built this house, they've built this temple to Dagon in which resides the statue of Dagon. Israel's Ark of the Covenant, captured in battle by the Philistines, is now placed beside the statue of Dagon in the temple of Dagon. Now, we need to understand the symbolism of this placement of the Ark beside the statue of Dagon. In the ancient Near East, almost everybody was a polytheist. It's a big word. Simply means that you believed in dozens of different gods. And so there was a god of grain, like Dagon, but there were also gods of fertility. There were gods of uh, rain. There were storm gods, etc. And so you might find yourself as an average citizen worshiping 30 or 40 different gods. When the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon, they believed that the God who was represented by the Ark, this God Yahweh, they believed he was a legit God, but one of several gods. And in his case, in Yahweh's case, he just had the unfortunate experience of being defeated in battle by Dagon. This is their thinking. 
So it wasn't just that the Israelite people had been defeated in battle by the Philistine people. It was also on the higher level that Israel's God had been defeated by Philistia's God. And now the symbol of the defeated God, the Ark of the Covenant, had been brought into the temple of the victorious God. Maybe Yahweh could be a help of sorts to the Philistines. Maybe he could be still potent for them in certain ways, a useful God, even though he'd been defeated. But, but now the deal was, Yahweh needed to understand, the deal was that he, symbolized by his ark, would have to sit there in a posture of submission and subordination beside the victorious Dagon. The assumption amongst the Philistines was that the defeated Yahweh would now be taking his orders from the superior Dagon. As Peter Latehart has put it, Henceforth, whatever power Yahweh possessed would be harnessed to the purpose of Dagon. If we want to put it this way, it was like Dagon was now Batman and Yahweh was considered his Robin at best. So just picture the scene in your mind's eye. Picture the scene there, if you can, in Dagon's temple. There's the little ark wasn't very big, it was less than three feet high. So there's the little ark with the great statue of Dagon towering over it. The ark had become, friends, like Dagon's war trophy, at least in the minds of the Philistines. Well, everybody goes to bed. They're happy and content. Uh, after they put the ark next to Dagon, they go and they get into their beds and go to sleep. Verse three, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, something is wrong. Dagon had fallen face downward. He had fallen on the ground before the ark of Yahweh. Isn't that odd? That's strange. John Golden Gay has said it this way. <laughs> I love this. It made me laugh in my study. I have a weird sense of humor. But he said, it's always disturbing when your God falls over. <laughs> it's always disturbing when your God falls over. Here was Dagon now, looking as if, as if, he was in a posture of worship before the ark of Yahweh. On his face before the ark of, of Yahweh. Sort of like a person would do to show his or her subservience to a higher authority. Wasn't this strange? Probably just a coincidence. I think maybe, friends, I think maybe the Philistines should have taken instructions from Isaiah 41, verse 7. Maybe they should have been more careful to fasten their dead, lifeless idol with nails. 
so he wouldn't fall over. The Philistines should have helped their God to stay in place. But never mind, because we get the end of verse 3, one of the funniest lines in all the Bible. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. <laughs> Dagon is a god who can't speak, right? Because he's a lifeless idol. Dagon can't speak, but I think if he could speak, he probably would have said something like this. Hey, friends, I've fallen down and I can't get myself up. Could you maybe come over and lift me up again, put me back in my place? And the people do that, even though Dagon, Dagon hasn't had the ability to ask them to do it. But good for them, they put their God back in his place. Now, was this just an unfortunate freak accident? This toppling over of Dagon here, was this just a one-time kind of bizarre event, an inexplicable happening that not, probably would not likely be repeated? Did the Philistines just sort of dust their hands off after setting Dagon up again and sort of shake their heads and say, well, we don't know how this happened. Uh, we, we never will probably know how this happened, but let's just, you know, carry on. Strange, right? Is that what happened? We wonder. But after providing their necessary support to their God, their support to their God, they go to their beds again that night and they drift off to sleep again. Verse four, when they rose early on the next morning, kind of like the women coming to the tomb, right? And they get a surprise. Well, they get a surprise here. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of Yahweh, and this time it's far worse for poor Dagon. It's far worse. The head of Dagon and both his hands, note, were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. My friends in Christ, if there was any doubt whether Yahweh himself was involved in Dagon's first TKO, his first knockdown, that doubt is now removed here at verse 4. At this point, I think Dagon could probably benefit from a few hundred bottles of Gorilla brand glue. He, he had been, remember, the people had propped him up, they had propped him up, but now he has severed appendages and he's lost his head. The hands are what a god would act with. And the head is what a god would think with. And now Dagon has neither. He can't act, and he can't think if he ever could. <laughs> Only his very pathetic torso remains intact. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was a, a relatively common practice in war to take the heads and the hands off of the enemy corpses. And those heads and those hands would serve as trophies of your victory. And they would also make it easy to tally up an accurate body count. When Dagon is found headless and handless, dead on the ground in his own temple, 
it means that he has been defeated in war. This is a military defeat. The first toppling of Dagon had found him worshiping in front of Yahweh's ark, and now the second toppling of Dagon finds him fatally defeated in war before the ark of Yahweh. Yahweh has defeated Dagon in Dagon's own temple. The head and the hands of Dagon are Yahweh's military trophy. Philistia and Philistia's god Dagon are the seed of the serpent who have been warring against the seed of the woman, Israel. And in Genesis 3.15 fashion, there is some head crushing that happens here to the seed of the serpent. Dagon loses his head. My friends, the trouble with our God is that he refuses to have any rival gods. The trouble with our God is that he won't ever be relegated to trophy status or to subordinate status. Yahweh, God of Israel, our God, who has revealed himself most fully in the person of Jesus Christ, he will not be manipulated, he will not be demoted, he will not be held captive in anybody's temple or made into some sort of mere symbol. When human beings attempt to exalt themselves or exalt some idol over him, God will knock down those idols. As the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, when you think you have God defeated, then he is active. When you think you have him captive, he knocks down your God. He is God, said Lloyd-Jones, who cannot be restrained, illimitable, absolute, eternal, the living God. And in 2023, there are many in our society who want God kept quiet. They say something like this, well, well your, your Christian religion, it might be fine for you if it makes you happy, but please keep it strictly in the private sphere. It will have no place in the public sphere. Your God must sit there quietly in our temple, subservient to our idols. He must be kept under control, and there must be a sort of steady predictability about him. Well, friends, in his own way, and in his own time, you can be very sure that God will topple the statues the heads and the hands of any and all idols are destined for devastation. They are destined for devastation. The entire world, the entire world, 
believers and non-believers, the entire world stands before a God who refuses to be told to stay in his place. Dagon is in ruins. Verse four tells us that his head and his severed hands ended up lying on the temple threshold. And now we get something interesting in verse five. It says, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day, this day when the guy's writing first Samuel. There was a superstition at this time that temple thresholds were entryways into the underworld. And that right under the temple threshold lay a whole group of various spirits. Dagon's head and his hands end up lying on the threshold so that the Philistines are wondering if maybe their god Dagon has begun a passage into the underworld amongst all those spirits. And so the threshold needed to be treated with intense care. No one would ever step on it again. Now friends, it would be one thing, I think, if if Yahweh simply confined his activity to the temple of Dagon (laughs) in the city of Ashdod here, but he didn't do that. Yahweh purposed that he would also be active in the broader territory of Ashdod, extending outside the walls of the temple. Verse six, the hand of Yahweh was what? was heavy against the people of Ashdod, the broader population. And he, the Lord, terrified them. God terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, now we have to remember here, friends, as we read this story, that God here, God here, is all by himself, so to speak, in the territory of Philistia. His freshly defeated people, Israel, they haven't made this trip with him, right? God dwells there in Ashdod between the cherubim on top of his ark. God is active all by himself, in Ashdod without the assistance of his people. And notice carefully in this verse that we have that word, hand. Notice that very carefully. Yahweh's hand was heavy against the people of Ashdod. We just heard about the hands of another god named Dagon being cut off, right? And rendered completely powerless. And now Yahweh's hand is active and it is powerful and it is heavy in Philistia. I think John Golden Gay gives us an excellent summary here. Listen to this, an excellent summary of both Dagon and Yahweh when he says this. There was a God who had hands you could see, but who could not do anything with them. That's Dagon. And there was a God who had hands you could not see, but who made you feel the effect of them. And that's Yahweh. That's our God. 
Dale Ralph Davis has pointed out that although it is, you've probably heard it, it's a popular saying in many Christian circles that God has no hands but our hands. You've probably heard that saying. There's some truth to it. But we might want to reevaluate it, he says, a little bit in light of this passage where God's hand is active and heavy even as his people are absent from the scene. God is more than capable, we need to understand, more than capable, he is more than capable of accomplishing his designs even without us. Although blessedly, and isn't it blessed, remarkably, he decides that he's gonna use us as his instruments. Now, when the Philistines had brought the ark into the temple of Dagon, they had assumed that now Yahweh was secure in their hands, right? He's in our hands now. But it turned out, in fact, that it was the Philistines who were in Yahweh's hand all along. And as the writer of Hebrews has it, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yahweh's hand afflicts the Philistines with tumors. Now, the majority view amongst Old Testament scholars, interpreters, is that God afflicted the Philistines with bubonic plague. Although it's impossible for us to be 100% certain on that, but there is some evidence within the text that this may have been bubonic plague. Just as God had subjected the Egyptians to plagues, during the time of the Exodus, so now he does this with the rebel Philistines. And I think with quite commendable discernment, the Philistines and Ashdod, they associate their tumors with the presence of the ark in their city. Verse seven, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of the God of Israel must not remain with us. Why? For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. It's like they realize suddenly that what they have in their city is like a leaking nuclear reactor core. The thing has got to go. It has got to be taken out of here, away. It's just too dangerous and it is literally killing us. And so they messaged the movers and the shakers in the town on their, whatever their ancient uh, messaging app was. And everybody came together, verse eight, and the question then was, once everybody's gathered together, the question then was, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? It's becoming a problem here. What shall, now notice this, what shall we do? It's up to them now to decide what must be done with the ark, because why? Because, well, Dagon, he's off the scene. Uh, he's incapacitated. He can't be reached for comment. So now it's up to these, notice, these tumor-afflicted people to deal all by themselves with the panic of having the ark there. And so they make the decision to move it out <laughs> Very interesting, to move it out to one of their other cities. Let the ark of God of Israel be, be brought around to Gath, 
Well, Gath was about 19 kilometers, this is Goliath's hometown, right? About 19 kilometers to the southeast of Ashdod, so they brought the Ark of God of Israel there. And I, I read this this week and I thought, boy, you almost wonder if the people of Ashdod had some sort of uh, vendetta against the people of Gath. <laughs> Um, the people of Ashdod send the ark to their countrymen, recognizing as they have the presence between the, the connection between the presence of the ark and their own tumors. So it's, it's an amazing thing here. Verse nine, the nuclear reactor core continues to leak wherever it goes. God continues to have a heavy hand in Philistia, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing what? A very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So let's just pause here and let's just take a quick review of events here. So the Ark of God had been exiled into Philistia, its presence there has now been directly connected to the toppling and the destruction of their national god, Dagon, and bubonic plague in two cities. This has quickly become a major, major crisis for the Philistines. This is a huge, huge problem. And do notice that very great panic amongst the Philistines that is mentioned there in verse nine, with, with this panic in the Philistines, what is God doing? Well, he is simply fulfilling a promise. He's fulfilling a promise that he made way back in the time of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse 23, God had promised that he would throw the enemies of his people into a huge panic or a great confusion. And the same Hebrew word that's translated panic is used both there in Deuteronomy 7 and here in verse 9 of our text, as the Philistines crumble into this very great panic, God is fulfilling his word. In verse 10, the panicked people of Gath can no longer handle the presence of the ark, so that maybe they had a vendetta against Ekron. They sent the ark of God to Ekron. So the, so the ark of God has gone, it's gone in quick succession from Ashdod to Gath, and now to another Philistine city, to Ekron. The hot potato, the nuclear reactor has passed through several human hands, even as God's hand is heavy against all these people, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, essentially the people of Ekron said, uh -uh. <laughs> nothing doing. But as soon as it came to Ekron, the people cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. The people of Ekron want nothing to do with the ark. Verse 11 they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. 
Notice how back in verse 8, the people of Ashdod had taken time to ask the question, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? But now there's been an intensification in the crisis. So by the time we get to this verse, the people of Ekron, they don't waste time asking what to do with the ark. They just give this urgent order, send it away. Things have gotten so intense. And then comes the final verse of our passage, verse 12. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Only a chapter ago, in chapter 4, verse 13, it had been the Israelites crying out because the ark was no longer with them. But now here at the tail end of chapter 5, it's the Philistines crying out because the ark is with them. It's the Philistines who are utterly defeated now, and Yahweh is the victor. Well, friends, this chapter of Scripture reads like God's victory parade that he plans and executes all by himself throughout the territory of Philistia. He's got no Israelites in tow with him, but he plans the parade route and goes on the parade, utterly defeating Dagon in his own temple, touring victoriously through Ashdod, then Gath, and then finally Ekron. What had initially looked like a massive and bitter defeat for Israel when the ark had fallen into enemy hands, this became a remarkable and total victory for God over the seed of the serpent. And in the process, God is teaching both Israel and Philistia, chapter 4 and chapter 5. He's teaching both Israel and Philistia, and he's teaching us in this part of his word that he will not be manipulated, he will not be confined, he will not be made subservient or thought of as a trophy or thought of as a good luck charm, and that ultimately he needs no human help to do as he pleases. Well, it was several centuries after this event that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and lived on this very sinful planet. And like the Ark of God in 1 Samuel 5, he too ended up being captured, arrested in enemy territory. He was taken to the hall of Pilate. But in this case, he didn't afflict, he might have, but he didn't afflict Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and the Roman guards and the mocking crowds. He didn't afflict them with tumors. Instead, he went willingly to the cross. And Jesus hanging there, bleeding and dying on the cross, this looked like a resounding defeat. Just as the ark's departure from Israel had looked like a resounding defeat. To, to surface appearances, the cross looked like the enemy had won. The disciples were, were full of sorrow as Jesus died just as the people of Shiloh had cried out when the ark 
had been captured. But what was happening on the cross, friends? On the cross, the hand of God was very heavy. In the words of Richard Phillips, it was on the cross of Christ where God struck the heaviest blow to the power and dominion of sin, taking away its curse by cleansing our guilt with the precious blood of Christ. God, friends, took what looked like game over, and through it, he worked his heavy hand to do what? To redeem his people. And I wonder, my friend, this morning, have you, are you a person who has yielded your life to the crucified and risen Jesus Christ? Are you a person who has submitted to his powerful grace? Have you understood that a rescue is necessary for you, a rescue from sin and death and the devil, and that only Jesus can provide and give that rescue? Are you trusting him by faith? Romans 10:9. if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, amen and hallelujah. And so I plead with you to confess him and to believe him and to do that this very hour. The God of 1 Samuel 5 surprises us, doesn't he? Perhaps he even unsettles us some. May he continue this week to get under our skin for his glory and our benefit and to show us how free and how mighty he really is and how all attempts society-wide to relegate him, to confine him, to subordinate him, to manipulate him, they're all futile. His great design to redeem his world will continue to go ahead no matter what. Be encouraged, be encouraged. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a mighty God. What a mighty God we serve. We sing that song, and indeed, Lord, it is true. You are mighty, you are free, you are sovereign, you are good, you are faithful, you love us. When we get up tomorrow, your love for us is going to be just the same as it is today. Praise you, Lord. Thank you for who you are and for what you have done and are doing for us, your weak children. In Jesus' name, amen.